The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. At Christmas time, of course, we focus on the first coming of Jesus, when God himself became a man, even a lowly baby born in a crude manger. It's a picture of the epitome of humility. But I believe Christmas is also an important time to enlarge our vision of the babe in the manger and to consider not just the Lord's first coming, but also his second coming which is anticipated in the near future. With the second coming of Jesus much closer than it was 2,000 years ago, shouldn't we also be contemplating and anticipating the Lord's second advent? In the meantime, some Hebrew roots teachers go so far as to say that we shouldn't even be celebrating what's perceived to be a paganized holiday. Is there a balance we can agree upon? Hello, I'm Christine Darg, and I have to admit that I do love the sparkle, the color, the candles, the fragrances, the coziness, the family memories of Christmas. Even though I'll admit that for many people, Christmas is a dreaded holiday. Christmas can be the loneliest time of the year, a sad season for so many people without family or who may be estranged from their families. On the one hand, there's always much to criticize about the commercial aspect of Christmas. Recently, I was shocked, but not really surprised, to see a holiday advertisement for a red leather handbag. And in the commercial, a man gives a woman a costly handbag for Christmas, and suddenly, shepherds break onto the scene to venerate the handbag. And the whole nativity scene is mocked. The red handbag replaces Jesus as the focus of attention and adoration. To me, this brazen TV ad represents the pinnacle of the commercialization of Christmas. Nevertheless, millions of Christians from one degree to another will celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ on December the 25th, while many other Orthodox Christians will celebrate the Savior's birth on or near January 7th. And that's based upon the Julian calendar, which predated the Gregorian calendar. But most scholars agree that Jesus wasn't born on either of those dates. Researchers believe the Roman Catholic Church settled on December the 25th to celebrate Jesus' birth for several reasons. The winter solstice and a festival dedicated to the Roman god Saturn were celebrated at that time. So by selecting December 25, the church conveniently coincided the celebration of Jesus' birthday with the popular pagan festival Saturnalia, as well as other pagan winter celebrations. But Bible scholars have in fact suggested that Jesus was born in the autumn, based partially on the biblical narrative that shepherds were watching over their flocks in the fields on the night of Jesus' birth, something shepherds wouldn't have done 
in the wintertime. Starting in November with the arrival of the rainy season, shepherds stay in shelters in the Holy Land. And although the New Testament doesn't record a specific date for the Lord's birth, nevertheless, we can work it out almost to the day if we study clues that are available in the Bible. At the time of Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2, and verse 1 records that in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And so everyone was required to go to their own town to register. Joseph, Mary's betrothed husband, had to travel from Nazareth in the Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem. This was because Joseph was of the house and lineage of King David. And so Joseph took Mary with him to be registered. And in God's providence, it happened that while they were in Bethlehem, Mary's days of pregnancy were fulfilled. Now, up to this point, the scriptures have already informed us that Mary's pregnancy was not illegitimate by any means, but that it was entirely supernatural, according to the Bible prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, that a virgin would conceive the Messiah. In those days, the Jewish people did believe that the Messiah would be the Son of God. And the young virgin, we are told in the New Testament, was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and so her son was divine. And Mary didn't engage in marital relations with her husband until after the birth of Jesus and after the Jewish purification rites regarding childbirth. And so Mary gave birth to her firstborn son in Bethlehem. And then the scriptures go on to tell us that at this time, shepherds in the region were keeping watch over their flocks at night. So as I said, this meant it wasn't winter time. And suddenly, an angelic host announced to the shepherds the joyous birth of a Savior, and a specific sign was given, that they would find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Why were these things a sign of his true identity as the Savior? It doesn't mean much to us in our time, but it's because these shepherds were no ordinary shepherds. Sources in Talmudic literature document that the flocks of sheep and cattle that were raised in the shepherds' fields around Bethlehem were bred for the very special task of becoming ritual sacrifices in the great temple of Jerusalem, just about five miles to the north of Bethlehem. So these shepherds, to whom the angelic host appeared, were in charge of a very famous field for temple sacrifices. And according to my research, it was their custom to wrap newborn lambs in swaddling clothes to protect them from any harm. This is because a sacrificial lamb must be without blemish. But once the lamb had settled down from the birthing process, the shepherds would remove the swathing and give the lambs to their mothers. So these shepherds understood the sign that this baby was the one born to die, the Lamb of God, 
for the sins of the world. And so they came with haste to find the baby. The sign of the manger also meant that Mary and the child were either lodged in a cave or in a stable, in a booth called in Hebrew a sukkah. This was due to the fact that Jews had crowded the area, not only because of the census that was going on, but also because of the busy Jewish festival called Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. Many pilgrims congregated in the environs of Jerusalem, and Bethlehem is, as I said, just a few miles from Jerusalem. So you don't realize how close Jerusalem and Bethlehem really are until you visit the Holy Land. And so, of course, I encourage you to come with us on one of our prayer tours. And so in God's timing and providence, Jesus, Yeshua is his name in Hebrew, wasn't born in Nazareth or Jerusalem. God arranged circumstances that the Savior of the world would be born right on time in the little town of Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And Yeshua is indeed the bread of life. According to Matthew 2, 6, Joseph's and Mary's relocation to Bethlehem fulfilled a prophecy. You see, the Messiah couldn't have been born anywhere except Bethlehem. This is because in the Old Testament, Micah 5, 2 prophesied, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Amen. And indeed, Jesus is the prophesied good shepherd born in a stable in a sukkah in Bethlehem amongst sheep and cattle. What a picture. You see, the God of Israel coordinated every detail. In his perfect timing, the Almighty engineered the census and all the circumstances for his son to be born during God's appointed times, his holy festival of tabernacles. And John, the gospel writer, also gives us a clue in John 1.14. He wrote that the word was made flesh and tabernacled amongst us. But there's more. The New Testament gives us important details about the conception and birth of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And these details help us to determine the chronological order of Yeshua's own birth. You see, no word is in the Bible by accident. And the name Abijah is a major clue, as you'll see in just a minute. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was a priest of the lineage of Aaron. And Zechariah served in the Holy Temple. And while he was burning incense in the temple, the angel Gabriel appeared to him and informed Zechariah, who was by now an old man, that he and his elderly wife Elizabeth would finally have a son, and they were to name him John. Well, back in the book of 1 Chronicles in the Old Testament, the rotation of the temple priests had been set up by King David. And there were 24 rotations. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that Zechariah belonged to the order of Abijah. And this fact pinpoints the time thereafter of John's conception. So when Zechariah completed his temple service, and according to the order of Abijah, the time would have been around the end of June or the beginning of July, 
that's when Elizabeth, his wife, would have conceived John the Baptist. Then the Gospel of Luke records that Mary was visited in Nazareth by the angel Gabriel also, and he told her that she would conceive the Savior by the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit. And then Gabriel gave Mary a surprising word to confirm the validity of his message by telling Mary a secret, that her elderly relative Elizabeth, the wife of Zechariah, who had been barren, was now six months pregnant. For with God nothing shall be impossible. So Mary, who was now carrying Jesus in her womb, hurried to visit Elizabeth. And as soon as Mary's voice greeted Elizabeth, John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb. Elizabeth greeted Mary with a prophetic word and a loud voice, which confirmed that Mary's holy pregnancy was indeed from God. And at this point, neither of the women had shared any intimate conversations. Everything was supernatural confirmations. So Mary was tremendously comforted by all of these circumstances, and she stayed with Elizabeth three months before returning to Nazareth to Joseph to try to explain her pregnancy to him with these signs. But it was too much for Joseph to believe, so he wanted to put Mary away quietly. However, Joseph was given a dream in which he was told that her baby was indeed conceived by the Holy Spirit and that he, Joseph, was to name the child Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, meaning God is salvation. Now John, the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, was born the week of Passover, and that's significant because John came in the power of Elijah, and there's an empty seat at every Passover table to welcome Elijah. At John's birth, Mary would have been three months pregnant. So if you count back three months from Passover, that means Jesus, Yeshua, was conceived, not born, but conceived. He was incarnated in Mary's womb on approximately December 25. If anything on that date, we can certainly celebrate the coming into this world of the light of the world, his conception. And it just so happens that December is the time of the Jewish festival of Hanukkah, the festival of the temple's rededication, also called the festival of lights. And Yeshua is the light of the world. It all makes sense. And although Hanukkah is not a Levitical festival, nevertheless, it's given an honorable mention in the New Testament in John chapter 10, in verses 22 to 23, which record that it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of Dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. That calls for a Selah moment. So now, if we count 40 weeks or a nine months gestation from his conception, December the 25th, that brings us to the 15th day of the seventh month of Tishri on the Hebrew calendar. And that's the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles called Sukkot. Scholars say it's very likely that Jesus would have been born on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and therefore 
he would have been circumcised on the eighth day of Sukkot, the day called Simchat Torah, meaning the rejoicing over the law. And this is because Yeshua is the embodiment of the Torah. He is the Word of God. And so let's consider how Jesus fulfilled the festivals of the Lord as outlined in Leviticus. Jesus, first of all, fulfilled Passover when he died as the Lamb of God. And he fulfilled the festival of first fruits when he was raised from the dead. Then he fulfilled the festival of weeks, or called Shavuot in Hebrew, known in Christian circles as Pentecost, when he sent the Holy Spirit outpoured upon the church. And he partially fulfilled the Feast of Tabernacles by being born at that time. But at his second coming, the Lord will make a greater fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles when he dwells in King David's restored tabernacle in Jerusalem and rules from his father David's throne. The week-long Feast of Tabernacles occurs in either September or October on the Gentile Gregorian calendar approximately three months before the holiday that we call Christmas. And so, having explained all of this, we can say that Christmas has evolved into a church tradition and a family time. But before you start to cast stones about keeping Christmas, let's look at an important instruction given by the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. Paul wrote, Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with, or with regard to a religious holiday or a Sabbath day. Now this is such an important verse to hang on to when people start telling you that you're in error if you worship the Lord on a Sunday instead of a Saturday, or if you eat non-kosher food, or even if you celebrate the Lord's birth on a certain date, and so forth. So remember Colossians 2.16, don't let anyone judge you on matters of food and drink or with regard to a religious festival. Is that clear or what? Paul assures us of the liberty that we have in Messiah. And so we can celebrate the Lord's birth anytime, really. And by the way, I looked up the message version of Colossians 2.16 and verse 17. It goes like this. So don't put up with anyone pressuring you in details of diet, worship services, or holy days. All these things are mere shadows cast before what was to come. The substance is Christ. Hallelujah. But you might ask, what about Santa Claus? Well, although St. Nicholas was an historical figure with a reputation for secret gift-giving, the Santa Claus and Father Christmas narratives are, in my estimation, a lie. And most of us recognize that lying is a sin. So I'm so grateful that I was brought up in a godly home by Bible-believing parents who didn't lie to us about Santa Claus. They told my brother and me that it was all make-believe. My parents joked that Santa brought gifts for good children and left bags of switches for bad children. And when we read the poem, The Night Before Christmas, I knew it was just a story. My parents refused to teach us a lie about Santa and the elves and so forth. 
They didn't want us to discover that Santa wasn't a real person, or perhaps they thought we might have, we might have doubted that Jesus was real. Well, through the years in our ministry, we've made good use of Christmas celebrations as opportunities to share the gospel with folks who might otherwise not give us a hearing. It's also a time to reach out and to help the poor and the needy. We've held many gospel outreaches at Christmas time, even in Bethlehem during the Orthodox Christmas holiday, when we take tour groups to the Holy Land. Well, now I want to switch gears a little to say that whenever we focus on a manger scene, we have to be careful not to miss the bigger picture. And that is Jesus is coming the second time, not as a meek and mild lamb, but as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. And in the book of Revelation, we're permitted to see the high court of heaven. And in Revelation 5, 5, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, even after his resurrection. The first time Jesus came, his glory and majesty were veiled in the form of a baby. Only a few attended his arrival, and make no mistake about it, the next time Jesus comes, he will be seen and recognized by all. The Bible says every eye will behold him and every knee will bow. If there were wonders when Messiah first came, there will be greater wonders when he comes the second time. So during this holiday season, I want to encourage you to marvel at the incarnation of Messiah in the virgin's womb, but also remember that he's alive and he's getting ready to return. You see, if we preach only the Lord's first coming, we're not telling the whole story. What was the purpose of the Lord's first coming? He was once offered to bear the sins of many. And that's the foundation of the gospel. Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures. God's holy law has been violated by humans and death is required as a penalty. But the Messiah died in our stead. That's the doctrine of the atonement. I heard uh, Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham, say recently that the famous American Benjamin Franklin once said, there's nothing certain but death and taxes. But there's one thing even more certain, and that's the second coming of Jesus. It's a sure thing. And my question is, are you ready? God's word says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. He will gather those of us who wait for him unto salvation. You see, he promised us in John 14. He said, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And another purpose of the Lord's second coming will be to restore the kingdom to Israel. On the one hand, we need to see Jesus crucified for our sins, dead and buried and raised from the dead, according to the scriptures. But we also need to see Jesus coming again 
to Israel and coming soon as the conquering king to rule this world from Jerusalem in peace and righteousness from the throne of his father David. For those who don't know the Lord and who are not ready for his return, the thought of the second coming can be scary for some people. But if you're fearful, ask the Lord to manifest himself to you because he is alive. You see, the first disciples believed in the resurrection not because they couldn't find a dead body, but because they encountered the living, resurrected Jesus. And as a faithful witness of the Lord's empty tomb in Jerusalem, I proclaim Jesus, raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He's at God's right hand. And we're permitted in the Bible to see Jesus as the center of heavenly adoration. To him, adoring worship is given. And so if we look in Bethlehem's manger and see only a baby, and we don't see the coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords, our vision is impaired. We're seeing only a part of the picture that the Bible teaches. The baby in the manger is very important because God did become flesh and he dwelt amongst us, but the baby in the manger is not the final picture. Hallelujah. Lately in my talks, I've been reminding people of the question that the disciples put to Jesus just before he ascended back to heaven. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples asked the Lord, Lord, will you at this time restore the Davidic kingdom to Israel? And his answer startled them. He said that before he returns and sets up rule in Jerusalem, first his disciples must preach the gospel to all nations. Well, we're doing our part and Guess what? Every time we preach in the nations and people get saved, we're hastening the Lord's return by helping to complete the fullness of the Gentiles in the kingdom of God. And you can also hasten the Lord's return by surrendering to him and giving your life to him. I want to conclude with the words from a Christmas carol called, I'll give him my heart. It goes like this. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring him a lamb. If I were a wise man, I'd sure do my part. So what can I give him? I'll give him my heart. So I invite you to do that now. If you've never received the Lord, I ask you simply and lovingly to do it now. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, but today, right now. Will you dare to confess with me before the throne of God? Heavenly Father, I do believe in my heart that you raised Jesus from the dead and I'm willing to confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Amen. The Bible promises that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, during this holiday season, I want to warmly invite you to watch all of our teaching videos at any time at our website, exploits.tv, and at our website. There are important news items in volatile prayer points that we post a couple of times each week to help you to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You can also sign up electronically to receive our free ministry newsletter called Exploits. And don't forget, our ministry wants to connect with you on the social media. 
And so until next time, earnestly contending for the faith and praying always for the peace of Jerusalem and wishing you a blessed epiphany season. I'm Christine Darg. Shalom. One of my long-held intentions has been to share more Bible insights with you in print. That's why we've just revamped our Exploits magazine by expanding it into a booklet of at least 24 pages. This gives us the opportunity to go into depth on topics that will give you a better understanding of the Bible, hopefully deepen your faith. The Exploits News Magazine is available just for the asking, either in print format or through the internet. To request your free copy, just contact me by phone, letter, email, or through our website. Our toll-free number in the United States is 1-888-245-2692. And in the UK, it's 0843-557-4077. Thanks to your continued support of the Jerusalem Channel, we can bring you our video teachings and now our new magazine booklet. Have a browse through it and let me know what you think.